the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Thursday, November 4th, 2021. 602-508-0960 is the number. We've lurched from holidays to pandemoniums. Everything is a crisis all the time. We once spoke of our international enemies as existential threats, and small countries have spoken of opposing or enemy countries as existential threats to them because we've misused the language, however. Those threats are now so pervasive and real, tens of millions of Americans, maybe even 100 million Americans, seem to support and exhibit those very threats. This is obviously why Joe Biden, while running for president, could say Donald Trump, quote, is an existential threat to America, close quote. Something Nancy Pelosi said about Donald Trump as an existential threat, but to the Constitution. And as I mentioned yesterday, only two nights ago, the chairman of the Democratic National Committee said the Republican Party is, quote, a party of fascism and fear, close quote. I'm reminded of a saying from Confucius, when words lose their meaning, people lose their liberty. Ralph Waldo Emerson put it this way, the corruption of man is followed by the corruption of language. People who disagree with you call you dumb, or if you're lucky enough to be a conservative or a Republican, Nazis or fascists. What historian Richard Hofstetter once labeled the paranoid style in American politics to describe the Barry Goldwater movement of 1964 is now firmly at home in our political and social rhetoric today. By R, I mean the elite culture. I mean everything from the newsrooms to the editorial boards, from the boardrooms corporate America to the classrooms. And by classrooms, I mean kindergarten through college. Five-year-olds, dude. Five-year-olds. The once famous Richard Hofstetter wrote this book, The Paranoid Style in American Politics, saying he used the word paranoid, quote, simply because no other word adequately evokes the sense of heated exaggeration, suspiciousness, and conspiratorial fantasy, close quote, he was describing the American right of the 1960s. Most of it was about the Goldwater candidacy and movement. As I mentioned, from the moment of Donald Trump's election, respected editorialists and political commentators said his election would ensure everything from a global recession to, yes, existential threats of our, to our Constitution. Donald Trump, to too many members of Congress, was a dictator, and someone who was, quote, tyrannizing our communities, close quote. He reminded them of, quote, Germany in the 1930s, close quote. And while not forgetting it was an existential threat to America per Joe Biden, he was, quote, worse than Hitler, close quote, according to one professor, allowed to freely say such things unchallenged, never mind uncontemned, on and by CNN. When it got into our schools that were not colleges, we woke up from our perilous slumber. And just like those liberated from the cave in Plato's Republic, those we tried to show, those who were looking at burlesques and that we tried to show reality, fought against us. And hard. They preferred 
the burlesques still do, all the while maintaining they were the woke, just as I suppose as a zombie is awake. He may be, but he is very dangerous, and he's not awake in the norms of human behavior or physiology or psychology in the definitions we used to think of. Shall we take a lesson from Plato? Remember what happens to the shadow viewers and cave dwellers once they are liberated and see the real world. Plato tells us, quote, The prisoners are released and disabused of their error. At first, when any of them is liberated and compelled suddenly to stand up and turn his neck round and walk and look toward the light, he'll suffer sharp pains, the glare will distress him, and he'll be um, unable to see the realities of which in his former state had been shadows. And then conceive someone saying to him that what he saw before was an illusion, but that now when he is approaching nearer to being and his eyes turned toward more real existence, he has a clearer vision. What will his reply be? Will he not be perplexed? Will he not fancy that the shadows which he formerly saw are truer than the objects which are now before him? And if he is compelled to look straight at the light, Will he not have pain in his eyes, which will make him turn away to take and take in the objects of vision, which are easier to see, and which he will conceive to be in reality clearer than the things which are now being shown to him? Close quote. You see what Plato is doing here. Once one is brought into the light, or enlightened, if you will, there is shock. First a dip- disbelief, sharp pains, glares of distress, and even an initial view that the reality is the false thing and the shadows are still the real thing, or at least the preferred thing. But he will slowly come around, and in short enough order, he will see things clearer than they ever used to be. And then Plato uses an interesting phrase about those who are enlightened and look back at their cave dwellers, or their erstwhile cave dwellers who still live in the cave. He says, quote, he would felicitate himself on the change and pity them, close quote. He would be felicitous of himself and have pity on others, the tribe he used to belong to. Felicity, of course, meaning happy. He would be happy, and sorrow would enter him when he thought of his former cave dwellers. And then something else happens next. The liberated, the happy, the felicitous, will want to explain to their chained brethren that what they are seeing as real is a lie. They will go back into the cave. They will be blinded by the darkness. And those who have stayed in the cave will think he is punished or harmed because his eyes aren't used to the dark. But the enlightened man will try to explain the folly to his chained brethren, and they will do what? Plato says they will try to kill him. Is this not precisely the problem we conservatives have today with the misled who sup at the table buried in Stygian darkness? They think we're the crazy ones, and they try to kill us politically, censor us, berate us, you name it. They don't want to hear it. So they live a lie. We know they live a lie, but the problem is this, and it's a big one. As Alan Bloom put it, our whole culture is the cave. And the people who think they are talking and speaking smart, though they are talking and speaking rot, Take large swaths of the culture with them. It's not that they are men on an island. It's that they want to change the whole island and define it by falsehoods, by their myths and narratives, as it were. In the 1970s, Irving Kristol said colleges are seas, excuse me, colleges and universities are islands of oppression in seas and oceans of freedom. 
Well, those seas and oceans water lines have receded quite a bit. This morning, Greg Moore in the Arizona Republic writes, quote, the, prob- <clears throat> the problem with critical race theory is that the phrase doesn't mean anything. Anyone who would debate the importance of teaching history as accurately and completely as possible isn't fit for a conversation on how to educate children. But that expression in all its liberal glory has allowed racists, race baiters, and anyone who wants their vote on positions from school board to U.S. Senate to hijack it into a conversation over minutiae and flat-out distortions, close quote. Well, I've been wanting to teach history accurately and completely my whole life. I even helped write textbooks and curricula to do so on American history. As far as critical race theory not meaning anything, perhaps Mr. Moore needs to go outside and huddle with his party and movement and work on getting the one right story straight. Because it obviously meant something to the NEA when this summer it passed a resolution explicitly mentioning defending and funding the teaching of, as they put it, critical race theory. The NEA, by the way, does not operate in law schools. So, too, the Virginia Department of Education three years ago. Were they meaningless resolutions and memos? On top of that, we're told it's only in the law schools. But then does that mean it doesn't mean anything in those law schools? And since when does what is taught in law schools not filter down and out? Heck, the entire Brown v. Board of Education decision and about 100 other Supreme Court cases I could mention that are taught in law schools are all about addressing an education in our nation's schools and our children. So can we stop this nonsense about what happens in law schools stays in law schools? Or is what the law schools are teaching meaningless to Mr. Moore? Regardless, you seem to still need the NEA and Department of Education memos spelling out that it needs funding and teaching in our schools. Mr. Moore concludes his column with this pablum today. Quote, our nation's history with race isn't a theory. Neither is our nation's current framework replete with exclusionary voting laws and outdated policing models that put authorities at odds with the communities they serve. Teach them both. The only way we're going to make any progress on issues that have a disproportionate effect on people of color is if we're speaking the same language. Words and semantics can't be as important as ideas and goals. And if we focus on the wrong things, we'll never get anywhere. Close quote. Well, what's clear is what Mr. Moore does is that Mr. Moore does not take his own medicine. Our movement has never said race is a theory and not part of our history. We have opposed efforts to distort those very things. We are not the ones taking down statues. Textbooks, earth to Mr. Moore, are not replete with paeans to American exceptionalism and greatness. They are dirges of a long, miserable march teaching a lousy, when it isn't boring, American history. Our, ne- our movement never bought into the thinking of the Confederacy as having the right approach, the right history, and the right views of our founding, that it was meant to expand slavery, and it was based on lies about equality. Our movement never thought that about the founding. The Confederacy did, as does your movement. Our movement tried to vindicate the Union victory over what once was called a lost cause and seems no longer to be a lost cause because today's Marxists and progressives and editorial writers embrace it. 
They say the fish is the happiest animal alive because its memory only lasts 10 seconds. It may explain why some of us are not very happy, because only six months ago, this Mr. Moore at the Arizona Republic wrote a column for his paper titled, quote, Absolutely, Critical Race Theory Should Be Taught in American Schools, close quote. It also had a subtitle, quote, Opinion. Just because critical race theory makes certain white people uncomfortable doesn't mean it's not valid. Is it too late to say Mr. Moore is meaningless? I mean, literally without meaning? In that column, he addressed conservatives and wrote, quote, assuming they can read, close quote, oh, goody, we just went from fascist and racist to illiterate. No, the other side is not quelled or schooled by Virginia. They are just getting started with us. So I hope with them are we. I'm Seth Liebson. We'll be right back. Yes, the point of what I was saying in the last segment is that don't dare, don't dare think our work is done because of what happened in Virginia. It's only just begun. The good folks over at Issues and Insights do their best and a really good job of trying to dispel what took place as a racist or white supremacist election. A quick look around the country on Wednesday morning led to an inescapable conclusion. Far, far from it being a racial election, average Americans just were fed up with the woke agenda and were eager to ex- escape it. Americans handed the reins to Joe Biden and the Democrats. And what after 10 months do they have to show for it? Rising inflation, an unprecedented flood of 1.5 million illegal immigrants, radically politicized public education, soaring crime rates, the loss of our hard-won national energy independence, totalitarian federal government targeting concerned parents as possible domestic terrorists, the disastrous pullout from Afghanistan that led that left hundreds of Americans stranded, among many other things. And we didn't even mention COVID. Headlines since the elections around the nation show just how badly the Democrats fared yesterday. I could read you a few. Glenn Youngkin's win officially ends the Clinton era in American politics, because Terry McAuliffe was a part of the Clinton machine. Another headline slate of conservative candidates declare victory in hotly contested Denver suburb school board race. Another shocking victory happened in Texas last night and suggests 2022 doom for Democrats. Republicans made incredible gains in yesterday's elections. Note to Dems, it's not 2020 anymore. Incumbent Brown declares Buffalo mayor right in win over socialist India Walton. Backfire. Minneapolis voters slam abolish the police proposal. Election election day chaos. New Jersey awaits to see who will be the governor while major upsets loom in the legislature. New York state ballot proposals demonstrate how badly Dems have misjudged public sentiments. Those are just those are just a passel a passel of headlines around the nation from yesterday. 
we could go on. You get the point. A recent poll shows 71 percent of Americans think the country is going in the wrong direction under Joe Biden, while 54 percent disapprove of his performance. Meanwhile, a recent INI TIPP poll showed that if a presidential election were held today, Biden and Trump would be in a dead heat with Trump leading Biden in three of four major U.S. regions. But it isn't just Biden and his awful policies that hurt Democrats. Of equal or greater importance was something Republicans usually think of as their weakness, but now should be their strength, our common culture. It's often said that the Democrats and their sympathetic far-left allies occupy the commanding heights of American culture. They dominate, you know the list, academia, Hollywood, publishing, social media, journalism, music, visual arts, museums and philanthropic organizations, even sports, from the MLB to the NBA to the NFL. They all toe the Democratic Party's woke line. The Republican Party has long shrugged at the leftist titans of culture who determine what's cool and hip, what words are permissible, what we watch and read online, and who gets jobs and influences the cultural realm. Tragically, the cultural elites have shaped the moral contours of our national discourse. They begin by ridiculing religion, ignoring conventional American morality, and savaging our history, and end by ignoring common sense. They chill dissent by calling any who disagree fascists and racists, among other actually worse things. Yet, thanks in large part to the parents' revolt against the teaching of critical race theory in Virginia and elsewhere, the GOP may have rediscovered the potency of culture. Now you're beginning to understand why progressives are denying CRT exists or that it's meaningless. Instead of talking like wonkish accountants, Republicans actually began talking about things that mattered to average Americans, independents, and even some Democrats. Those things that matter include traditional cultures of openness, free speech, religious tolerance, merit-based advancement, and equality of treatment under the law, as opposed to Marxist-inspired class and race warfares and divisions and hatred for American history espoused by the now most, mostly socialist Democratic Party. I want to say a bit more about this when we come back. I'm at 602-508-0960. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show, 602-508-0960, if you would like to uh, call in or weigh in. Jim Car- James Carville, or Jim Carville, uh, the Democratic strategist, particularly close and identified with the Clintons, along with his partner Paul Begala. Jim Carville made some headlines this morning explaining Virginia much the same way you or I might think about it, saying that the Democrats just went off the rails with this kind of reinvention of the language and this woke cultural this woke cultural and he used a word <laughs> that begins with a C that I probably shouldn't use the way only Jim Carville can use it. But let's just say he was speaking about woke cultural nonsense. 
That's what defeated the Democratic Party. James Carville, famous for saying it's the economy stupid. I can understand that position of his because when he was in 1992 saying it's the economy stupid and what he was saying this morning about the race in Virginia is connected really by the same arc. It's connected by an arc. And that arc is that Democrats lose – Democrats err and lose when they engage in things having to do with liberalism and culture. The American people are not, in James's estimation, a culturally liberal people, or at least aren't so liberal that they want to move from live and let live to I will live however you tell me to live. And what's interesting about that, if you think about it, it's just the economy. Only stick with the economy. It's What's interesting about that, that advice from Carville, that thought from that part of the Democratic Party, which doesn't exist much anymore except in the history books, what's interesting about that is that it's we conservatives who are being told – Barack Obama particularly said it over the last weekend – for inventing cultural issues, fake cultural issues, Barack Obama said. They don't want us talking about the things that they do. They don't want us reacting to the things that they do. Otherwise, there would be no problem with cancellation and censorship. Otherwise, there would be no problem in Barack Obama telling us that the issues we're raising are fake. They want them off the table. How many times have you been told CRT is not involved in our nation's schools, only to find out that, yes, it is? How many times have you been told that what we're talking about or what we're finding important or an assault to our country and our values is a side issue, a wedge issue, race issues, life issues? Death issues, education issues. And it sent me back to Barry Goldwater's conscience of a conservative. For it was he and Brent Brazell and uh, Steve Shattig who were way ahead of the curve on all this. Way ahead of the curve. So far ahead of the curve that, as George Will puts it, it took 16 years to count the votes after Barry Goldwater ran for president. 16 years ahead of their time, perhaps, ahead of the curve. But just because Barry Goldwater and his buddies and teachers and colleagues said it in 1964 or 1960 when Conscience of a Conservative was written, doesn't mean it's any less true today. And what Barry writes, what Barry Goldwater writes in The Conscience of a Conservative, it seems to me just now is important for all of us who want to talk to people whose memory is, in fact, open to being 10 seconds longer. Barry Goldwater, right up front, says that liberals often say they're the ones interested in people. And that the conservative is concerned, and that the liberal is concerned with human beings, while the conservatives are quote preoccupied with economic privilege and status. 
Take them a step further and the liberals will turn the accusations into a class argument. It's the little people that concern us, not the malefactors of great wealth. Well, let me tell you how Barry Goldwater responded to that charge when we come right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Uh, For a very long time, Democrats have tried to maintain the mantle of decency and care and concern and philanthropy in their policies and politics towards the human being, while the conservatives were the ones who were only worried about corporate broadsheets and financial matters, the economy, economics. It's an interesting thing that the Clinton transition of the Democratic Party, short-lived though it was, but successful as it was, abandoned cultural issues under the banner of it's the economy, stupid. But we're now back to a place where we're told, no, we the liberals, we care about the oppressed, we care about the human being, and it's you conservatives and Republicans who just want to maintain privilege and your 1% status. Barry Goldwater was on to this very early on. In 1960, in his bestseller, The Conscience of a Conservative, he says, such statements, and I'm quoting directly now, do great injustice to the conservative point of view. Conservatism is not an economic theory, theory, though it has economic implications. The shoe is precisely on the other foot. It is socialism that subordinates all other considerations to man's material well-being. It is conservatism that puts material things in their proper place, that has a structured view of the human being and of human society in which economics plays only a subsidiary role. The root differences between the conservatives and the liberals of today, Goldwater goes on, is that conservatives take account of the whole man, while the liberals tend to look only at the material side of man's nature. The conservative believes that man is in part an economic or an animal creature, but he is also a spiritual creature with spiritual needs and spiritual desires. What is more, these needs and desires reflect the superior side of man's nature and thus take precedence over his economic wants. Conservatism, therefore, looks upon the enhancement of man's spiritual nature as the primary concern of political philosophy, while liberals, in the name of concern for human beings, regard the satisfaction of economic wants as the dominant mission of society. They are, moreover, in a hurry, so that their characteristic approach is to harness the society's political and economic forces in a collective effort to compel progress. In this approach, I believe they fight against nature. This is Goldwater, 1960. Surely the first obligation of a political thinker is to understand the nature of man. The conservative does not claim special powers of perception on this point, but he does claim a familiarity with the accumulated wisdom and experience of history. And he is not too proud to learn from the great minds of the past. The first thing he learns is that each 
member of the human species is a unique creature. Man's most sacred possession is his individual soul, which has an immortal side but also a mortal one. The mortal side establishes his absolute differentness from every other human being. And only a philosophy that takes into account the essential differences between men and accordingly makes provisions for developing the natural and potentialities of each man can claim to be in accord with nature. We have heard much in our time about the common man. It is a concept that pays little attention to the history of a nation that grew great through the initiative and ambition of uncommon men. The conservative knows that to regard man as part of an undifferentiated mass is to consign him to ultimate slavery. Let me pause on what Barry Goldwater is writing here in 1960 for just a moment. For if man's most sacred possession is, as Goldwater states, his individual soul, we can begin to understand why the founders and to this day we conservatives are so concerned about individual rights. If there is no individual right, you cannot protect your individual soul. And if the government is coming after you on your individual rights, they are coming after you for the possession of your soul as well. For your individual rights, first and foremost, protect you not only from violence by the government or another human being, but if you read the Bill of Rights, they protect you for your speech, for your thoughts, for what you want to write, and for how and where you wish to pray. When Barry Goldwater finishes that paragraph saying the conservative knows that to regard man as part of an undifferentiated mass is to consign him to ultimate slavery, we're watching that before our very eyes. Today, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration did finally issue and announce, promulgate and disseminate its rule for mandatory vaccines in the private sphere. It's interesting to me that when we conservatives try and apply something like the First Amendment to parts of the private sphere, say Facebook, say Twitter, when we try and take that very well-known and established right to the private sphere, we're told you can't do that. We're told you can't interfere with an individual corporation's ability to censor or ban. But today, we are now told, in your private place of business, or just let's call it your place of business, in your place of business, the rule is that you must be vaccinated or pay yourself for weekly tests. Sticky thing, that issue of an undifferentiated mass, as Barry Goldwater puts it. Of course we are all different people. Of course we all have different biologies. Of course we all have different immunologies. Of course we all have different comorbidities. Of course we all have different compromises. How else and why else do you think COVID has affected different people 
different ways. And why else and how else do you think the vaccine, which is being mandated universally today, has affected different people different ways? Let me tell you what the most insane part of all of this is when you start taking away the differentiations between people and their individual rights. Let me tell you how insanity becomes public policy. It becomes public policy by forcing individuals in their private businesses and private lives to put two, if not more, and likely more, needles in their arms for something that does not protect others. It no more protects my colleague Bill from getting COVID if I'm vaccinated than it does protect me from the cold if I ask him to wear a down jacket. It creates an insanity. It creates a brave new world based in the year 1984. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. You just heard an ad for our great um, great event on November 16th at the Orpheum Theater, America for Which It Stands, featuring Larry Elder, Dennis Prager, and Charlie Clerk, all who will be on stage together. I'll be there. Hope you will be, too. Tickets are going fast, and we're going to have Dennis Prager on in just a few moments at the top of the hour to talk a little bit more about it. America for Which It Stands. You can get tickets at 960 The Patriot. Dot com. I, uh, I recall, am I right, Bill? Help me out. Since COVID began, so January, February 2020, I think we've done three events with Dennis Prager. I think we've done three events with Dennis Prager. This will be his fourth. God bless him. And God bless, of course, Larry and Charlie as well. Let me just finish this hour with this thought from Barry Goldwater, especially as we face the day today where vaccine mandates are disseminated by the Occupational Safety and Health Administration. Once we appreciate the nature of man, it is understandable that the conservative looks upon politics as the art of achieving the maximum amount of freedom for individuals that is consistent with the maintenance of social order. People want a definition of conservatism, by the way. That's a pretty good one. That's a pretty good elevator pitch definition of conservatism. Politics is the art of achieving the maximum amount of freedom for individuals consistent with the maintenance of social order. I've used a different construction. I've said it's a politics of liberty and a sociology of virtue. Goldwater says the conservative is the first to understand that the practice of freedom requires the establishment of order. It is impossible for one man to be free if another is able to deny him the exercise of his freedom. Do we remember that? Do you remember that? But the conservative, he says, also recognizes that the political power on which order is based is a self-aggrandizing force and that its appetite grows with eating. He knows that the utmost vigilance and care are required to keep political power within its proper bounds. 
This is our concern. This is our mission. This is what Barry Goldwater stood for in 1960 and 1964. When people say they miss the Republican Party of Barry Goldwater, you know what I tell them? Step out of the cave. Step out of the cave and look at the light. This is the same conservative movement today fighting the same battles, or as Barry Goldwater might have put it, the same damned battles. Dennis Prager coming right up. We'll be right back. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. <laughs> 